Can't say it enough. Every time I'm back, I say it, but it's good to be back down from school here with my family at, at Lakeside and excited to see each and every one of you that's come out. Uh, the comment must be made, lovely weather we're having, huh? Right? Nice, nice outside. Um, no, but but in seriousness, I'm, I'm glad that we all made it and we made it and we came out and we're here to worship God and to be about God and to be about His things and to look into His Word. That's what we're doing here in this period of worship is we're looking into God's Word and we're seeing what truths that we can glean from it and seeing how we can benefit from doing just that. And so I'm excited and I'm blessed that you'll do that with me. You'll be greatly benefited if you're following along and you're paying good attention during this period of the worship service. You can be opening to 2 Timothy chapter 2 where we'll be studying from in just a minute. But before we get too much into the text in 2 Timothy chapter 2, I've got to ask you all, you guys have conflicts in your life? You guys have struggles? Some would use the word battles. I mean, I know that I do. A lot of them I make for myself, but still yet, they're there. We all struggle with different things. You know, me being a student at school, you know, it's the pressure of making good grades and of, of you know, keeping up my social life and of doing things like that. And we all have things with our job and with work and with friends and family and different struggles and different conflicts that we have, be they very small, such as Ah, man, I hope I can make a good grade on this quiz for me, or very, very large, like, where am I going to go after college kind of thing, you know? But there's, there's all kinds of things for, for me and for all of us that we have large and small battles. And, of course, we can look to many characters and battles in the, the Old Testament to kind of reinforce that and to remember that we're not alone in this and that people of God have been battling for a long time. But I think a really strong example of that is King Hezekiah. If you don't know who King Hezekiah is, you ought to. He's an amazing, amazing man, a great king, um, described up, uh, among the ranks of men like David and Josiah. He was one of the greatest kings that the people ever had back in the Old Testament. So what's significant about Hezekiah is that he made great efforts at this concept called restoration. Now, of course, we're all familiar with and understand the concept of restoration, making things new and and doing things the way that the Lord has, has wanted us to do them, even though perhaps maybe they've been perverted or twisted. Well, Hezekiah in his day, his father Ahaz had completely twisted up and, and messed up and, and led people astray in so many different ways. So, so he was making an active effort to restore everything, to remove the idols out of the temple, to bring everyone back into a right relationship with God, and to continue things the way that they ought to be. But of course, as most of us know, as we're actively participating in trying to be members of, of New Testament Christianity in a world that shrugs at that concept, we're trying to restore those things um, constantly. The, the people of God, we sometimes meet some, some problems and some, ad, some adversity when we're doing this. And, and Hezekiah himself did. As he tried to restore the proper worship of the Jewish system, there, were, there arose a nation, the Assyrians, and a king, Sennacherib, who desired to crush Judah, the tribe or the the, uh, the country that he was leading, and the Assyrians, they were a mighty nation, a huge threat to the southern kingdom over which Hezekiah reigned, over which Hezekiah was king. So, knowing this, knowing that that he experienced this kind of threat and he experienced this kind of pressure and this kind of conflict on such a large scale as is am I going to be able to lead this nation in such a way that we're not going to be overtaken by this pagan kingdom? We can we can understand the the seriousness and the weight of it, and we can take a lot of amazing truths about that and apply it to our own lives and our own struggles and our own conflicts. 
that are that are very significant as well. So if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verse 1 through 5, we have an admonition from the Apostle Paul to a young Timothy where he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So Hezekiah was facing the threat of war. We know that we're in a war today because we're charged to be soldiers. So what does it mean to be a soldier? Well, a soldier can't afford to be a chicken, can they? A soldier can't afford to be a coward, and a soldier can't afford to, to hesitate when it comes to doing the right thing. You know, have you, you guys ever heard this phrase, there's no atheist in a foxhole? You know, there's, we're all encamped here, and, and, and back in military times, they would, uh, back in older military times, before the modern warfare, people would be in foxholes. They would dig deep trenches, and they would be down there, and that, that would be their means of defense so that it wouldn't be directly in the line of fire of the enemy. But still, there would be fire incoming down in there, and there would be bombs being dropped and things like that. And the, the phrase, there's no atheist in a foxhole, was because there's a lot of people in that foxhole that are all of a sudden becoming very, very religious. Why? Because their life very well could come to an end in that foxhole. So it, they, they had to take that very seriously because things like life and death were at stake in that foxhole. And so if we understand that, if we understand that life and death were certainly at stake for Judah, for the southern kingdom, then we can understand how much pressure Hezekiah was facing here and how much that they needed the Lord their God in this circumstance. Now, Hezekiah was a great restoration leader of the Old Testament. And it's only natural that in this attempt at restoration that, that there would arise some enemies and there would arise some detractors. So knowing this, we as Christians, as we continue to restore the church that the New Testament talks about and continue to actively restore our own hearts to do what, what God wants us to do, we have to take heed and know that there is going to be some adversity of our own. And as we examine this conflict from 700, or from 700 years before our king came, roughly, let us look within ourselves to determine where our faith would stand in this time and how we think we might respond in a situation like this and, and, and what we ought to do in order to become a person like Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was, again, if you don't know about him, he was a great, great man, talked very highly of in the scripture. So you might be saying, you're comparing me to someone like this, like a Hezekiah, like a David, a giant of faith, like Peter or Paul. Well, yes, quite frankly, I am, because those are the standards that we have. These are the these are the great leaders that have come before us. And so we must look at we must look at them and we must look at Christ and we must compare ourselves to them, to the standard that we have in Jesus Christ. And we should use that to draw and decide how we're going to be. But before we get too much into the kind of person that Hezekiah was, we need to really understand what kind of nation Assyria was, I think, so that we can we can really understand the threat that they were facing and the pressure that they was fa- they were facing. In Second Chronicles chapter thirty two, and in verse one, we can read a, a little bit about Sennacherib, their leader. Second Chronicles chapter thirty two and verse one. After these things, and these acts of faithfulness, that's referring to Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. And encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. 
take a little bit of time to study on your own about Assyria and you look at the history of those things, you'll read about the just the wicked and pagan practices that Assyria had. If you even just read in the Old Testament, you can read about plenty of wicked things that the Assyrians did. And we read about this, and what do we think about the Assyrians? We think, man, these guys are against God, they're evil, they're prideful, they're in error, they're just low-down, belly-to-the-ground snakes. And while there definitely is some weight of truth to all those things, we have to remember that Snekerib, he's not exactly like the villains in the old Saturday morning cartoons that we used to watch. He's not some (laughs) just generically evil person. He legitimately believed that what he was doing was good. Why? Because he had a pantheon of pagan gods behind him that he believed were were in approval of the things that he was doing and, and wanted him to defeat the armies of the Lord our God. And he believed that he had a divine command to do that. But he believed that in error. See, those that do the work of the devil, like Sennacherib, they don't usually tend to believe that they're doing the work of the devil. They don't usually believe and accept that they're in error. Still yet, though, they're deceived. In the same very same pattern that's been set forth since the genesis of man, in the very same pattern that we've been deceived and that has caused us to stumble and that's caused us to sin. Those that rebel and those that live riotously against God They truly, in the words of Jesus, know not what they do. If they truly understood everything to their core in the way that they were supposed to, well, what would they do? They would stop. They wouldn't do that anymore. If they knew that it was wrong, if they really and truly knew that it was wrong and they felt that it was wrong, then they would stop. But but they're, they're led astray by the lies of Satan. And why? Why would the Assyrian people be so thoroughly convinced that they were doing what was right? Well, it's the same line that we often hear today about people who believe that they're in a right relationship with God, but are not. Well, look at how my life has turned out. I'm blessed so abundantly. Everything's going my way. Of course God is on my side. Well, well, that's exactly what the Assyrians were thinking. Why? Because at the time, they had the largest military of that time. They had a king that was a charismatic warlord and a great leader, and they were thriving economically. They were a world superpower. So, of course, they're saying, look, there's... This divine pantheon of gods that we believe in, they truly exist, and they're truly behind us. And of course, that's just the devil. That's the devil taking advantage of their pride and of their hubris, and the devil taking advantage of their comfort to be blessed so abundantly. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, then we'll really see where where people like the Assyrians fall into this equation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. That's a pretty familiar passage for a lot of us. And this is where the Assyrians are. They think that they're standing. They think that they're upright. They think that they're doing what is right. And as do many of the wicked people that we see in the world, many of the people who are in error religiously in this world, they believe that what they're doing is right. And they may oppose us and they may stand against us, just like the Assyrians do here. But they're taken in their hubris. And they don't see the truth, just like the Assyrians didn't see the truth, that they could not possibly, no matter what they did and how much reasoning they did in their own minds and how much squirming and how much fighting or how strong their military was, that they would not be powerful enough to overcome our Lord, to overcome the God of heaven. And that was where they made their fatal error, is when they decided to pick a fight with the people of God. And when they decided to 
to really try to struggle and wrestle against God himself and against his will on a much grander scheme. See, see if, as, we, as we kind of think about Hezekiah now in understanding that, we, we, we know that Hezekiah knew where his faith needed to go. It wasn't in himself like the Assyrians, like the people that are out in the world. It wasn't in, in his own ideas or in his own ideology. It was, it was in God. Because Hezekiah, if he just thinks about just the bare bones facts of the situation, there is no way in, on paper that the southern kingdom can do anything, can, do, can even scratch the Assyrian army because they're, they're massive in comparison. They are armed to the teeth in comparison. They are so much more wealthy. They have so much more, just in general. As far as, if we look at just earthly standards, there's no way that they could win. But what does Hezekiah respond? He doesn't just lay down and die. He doesn't just accept that, well, this is just how it's going to be. The Assyrians are too powerful. No. If we look at Hezekiah's perspective, and we, and we kind of understand Hezekiah's reaction to this seemingly impossible challenge, we can understand how when, yeah, we're, we're small, we're few compared to those that are out and those are, that are out in the world and that oppose the will of the Lord. The, 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 the way is narrow. It's true. The, the church is not the majority in this society. Our, our home is not here on this earth. And we are outnumbered greatly. And it seems like this world is dominated by pagan and wicked ideas. And, and, and in many ways it is. But we can see through Hezekiah in Second Chronicles chapter 32... In starting in verse 2, kind of how we're to respond. We're going to kind of work through the text a little bit here in Second uh, Chronicles 32. So you can just hold your place here for a little bit. So Hezekiah didn't just lay down and die. He was, he was willing to fight for God. So when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to wage war against Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. They gathered a large group of people who blocked all the springs and the, and the stream that flowed through the land, why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. So he, he's getting people together. He's rallying people to work together for the cause of God. Okay. So verse 5, then he worked hard. He worked hard. That's important. Repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers on it. He built another wall outside the one and reinforced the terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. So he's fortifying the, the area. He's fortifying the defenses that they have, and he's preparing to go on the offense as well. He's sharpening up the tools of the trade of war, and he's getting ready to do what he has to do to fight for the cause of God. Again, so verse 6, he appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square at, at the city gate and encouraged them with these words, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and with the vast army with him, for there is a greater power with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh, but with us, with us is the Lord our God. Why? To help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, the king of Judah, said. He fortified the cities. His people began preparing to defend the the people of God from the Assyrian threat. And despite being the veritable underdogs, Hezekiah didn't hesitate for a moment. He was preparing to go to war. And his reasoning for that is the exact words that he used to encourage all the people. That the Lord, our God, is with us in this conflict. And he prepared as he should. And he did everything right up till this point. But even Hezekiah stumbled a little bit. If we look in Second Kings chapter 18, 
If we look in 2 Kings chapter 18, but you can keep your plays marked in 2 Chronicles, where we'll, we'll, we'll be back there very soon. So in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 13 through 16. So in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent the message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. So Hezekiah made a bit of a blunder here. What does that tell me? Even some of the greats make blunders. You know, we, we had a VBS about David a, a long time ago, I think. It feels, it feels like a long time ago to me. But we talked about how his, his sin was so great. Um, but that, that was part of... Who made, what made him who he is is that he came back from that. And we kind of see that from Hezekiah as well here. Um, but, but we see kind of the result of this act of submission to this pagan nation because of Hezekiah's sin down in verse 19 through 25 of the same passage as, as the, the field commander of the Assyrians kind of chides him. The field commander said to them, tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria says. On what are you basing this confidence? You say you have the counsel and the might for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord. The Lord himself told me to march against this country and to destroy it. So there's a lot of things here to unpack. Number one, the, uh, the, the first point that this field commander says is, I know what you're doing. You guys are relying on Egypt. That's where you're putting your chips. That's where you're putting your faith. He says, there's no hope in that. And he's actually correct. If Hezekiah were relying on Egypt to deliver them from this situation, then he would be relying on a nation that would probably fail him. If, if they, in verse 22, he says, if you're saying we depend on the Lord our God, then he's saying that they're hypocritical because they tore down the high places. Obviously, this field commander doesn't understand that those high places didn't even need to be there to begin with. And so then he offers them, finally, a bargain, that a kind of a sarcastic tongue-in-cheek bargain, that if they can even have enough soldiers, they'll even give them horses to kind of handicap themselves, and they'll still beat them. So he's demoralizing, and at this point just adding insult to injury, to the people of God. So Hezekiah, at this point, his back against, is against the wall, such to the point that the field commander is pointing out X, Y, and Z, why you have no hope, and he's laughing at him, not unlike the people of the world would laugh and chide at us about why our hope in Christ is, is incorrect or is wrong, and Hezekiah could be, he could be shaking in his boots right now. He could be picturing the hoofbeats of the Assyrian mounted chariots and horses and hearing the sound of spears being sharpened on the horizon and hearing the doldrums of war being banged and and 
just looking through his head and envisioning his very last moments and being captured by the Assyrians. He could be doing that. But instead, what does he do? If we look in Second Chronicles again in uh, chapter 32, Second Chronicles chapter 32, we can see that though Hezekiah stumbled and he was shaken, and though that everything looked bleak and completely hopeless in this conflict, that he consulted Isaiah, the prophet of the Lord, and the text says that they spread the matter before the Lord in Second Chronicles 2, 32 and verse 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. So that's where we are in the narrative. Assyria is on the horizon. They're, in, they're encamped. They're ready to take the southern kingdom. And it's going to be all out war. And it's looking like the people of God have no chance. It's looking like the sun is finally going to set on this amazing epic that is the story of Israel. The struggles with God are finally going to come to an end. But I'm going to have to leave you on the edge of your seat for a moment. Because I want to talk to you about what this means for us. What, what, what we can take from this portion of the story before we finally get to our climactic finale. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 through 13, we remember that we have our own conflict going on right now, don't we? In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 through 13, we're charged to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. To put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground after you have done everything to stand. So, just as in Hezekiah's day, there is a threat of death of a dark and a wicked power overcoming them and crushing them, and it seems hopeless and it seems like the chips are down. Today, we have a similar air. We have a similar problem. We're being threatened constantly. Everywhere we go, once we leave these four walls of this church building, once we leave and we go out back into the world, we're faced on every side with sin and with temptation to sin. And it's becoming more and more the norm as the society grows more and more wicked. And so what must we do? Well, I'll tell you. We can't not take this conflict seriously. For the people of God in this time, they had no choice. If they didn't take this conflict seriously, they would have a spear through their chest. For us, the consequences don't seem as immediate or as pertinent. But in fact, this war is far, far more significant than, than even this war that we read about in the Old Testament. And so we have evil surrounding us. So what must we do? We must respond in the same way that Hezekiah did, in the same way that Isaiah did, and spread it before the Lord and do as the Lord would have us to do. And that requires a lot of reverence. But what do we do instead? We're soldiers and we're, we're here at our outpost, but what are we doing? In, 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 instead of preparing for war, instead of fortifying our cities, instead of sharpening our weapons. A lot of times, we're just doing a whole lot of nothing. A lot of times, we're making excuses, or we're making pre-excuses. You know what I mean? When I say pre-excuses, we're making excuses before we've even bailed out. I'm like, am I going to see you at PM service? Well, I got a lot of work to catch up on at home. I got a lot of chores and things like that. But I'll try to make it. Well, you already already made a pre-excuse. I know what you're doing. You're not going to come. 
And I've seen that happen, and, I, and, it, and it hurts me to hear things like this. What else do we do? Well, we complain and we gossip. And we, we man, I can't believe Brother So-and-so said that to me in the foyer, and, and, and I can't stand him, and no, 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 no. And we give a weak and we give a half-hearted attempt at righteousness and at fighting this fight that is so serious that all this pettiness should be cast aside. It shouldn't even be an afterthought. We should, we should yell to heaven. We should cry out to heaven like Hezekiah and like Isaiah did. But instead, my fear is that sometimes we give a weak and we give a half-hearted whisper to heaven. And we can't do that. Because if we look at our opposition and we spread before the Lord just as Hezekiah did, we will see the seriousness of this conflict. As we read earlier, our enemy is not a physical entity. Our enemy is the devil and the, the powers of darkness. How, how powerful he is that he's even referred to as the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. That he owns much more real estate as far as souls go than God does. He does. He has far more numbers. If we had a chart of how many people are under the power of Satan versus how many people are saved by the blood of Christ, we would see that the devil has much more real estate as far as souls go than God. That he's repeatedly and broken down and manipulated mankind with the same pattern of deception that he used in the garden and the same pattern that he uses again and again and that he's even more present and even more wicked today than he was in the time of the Assyrians. So in the face of this threat, to whom shall we go? Who shall we look to for leadership? No doubt at this time in 2 Kings chapter 18, in 2 Kings chapter 18, no doubt the Jewish people looked physically to Hezekiah as they were mocked by the Assyrian representatives here in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 31 through 35. As the, the continuation of that verbal assault that we read about earlier where the, the field commander was just ripping on Hezekiah and just insulting him uh, as we read about how, how they kind of responded to that. He's in verse 31. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is the field commander again. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his hand from the king of Assyria. Has, where are the gods of Hamath and Arpit? Where are the gods of Sepharvam, Hena and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? He says, Do not listen to your king. I will deliver you. We will give you the out. We'll give you a better deal. And in the same way, that's exactly what the devil's telling us now. Do not listen to your king. Do not listen to the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. You can relax. You can do your own thing. You don't have to feel responsible. You don't have to feel tethered to this word. That's what we're told by Satan. But in 2 Kings chapter 18 and verse 5, Hezekiah is described as a king like none other before him. That's, that's how he's described. Just like in the beginning of this lesson, I told you Hezekiah is a great guy. He's really strong. But we have a greater king than even Hezekiah. We have a greater king than even Hezekiah. See, the Assyrians were threatened by Hezekiah. Of course they were threatened by Hezekiah. They knew he was a strong leader. And that's why they're saying this. Do not listen to him. Because they know if they do listen to him, then they've got a shot. And in the same way, Satan knows that if we'll just heed the word of our king, then we've got a shot. 
that our king is greater than Hezekiah, that Jesus Christ is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And praise be to God because we couldn't stand a chance in this war without the great and the mighty sovereign ruler that is Jesus Christ our Lord that has been that we give command over every aspect of our lives in obedient faith. He is the king who on the cross could have called down 10,000 angels to obliterate the entire earth but instead showed divine mercy in giving up all the glory and all the blessings of being in heaven and sitting at the right hand of God in order to teach us and to show us that we have a shot in this fight. That we have a chance. The chips aren't all the way down and the sun hasn't set on this war. And praise be to God because we couldn't stand a chance without Jesus. The people of God responded to the threats of the Assyrian representatives in verse 36 with silence. As their king had commanded. That's what the text tells us. They responded as their king had commanded in verse 36. And now our king Jesus has commanded us to believe in him. And what does that mean to believe in Jesus? Well, it doesn't just mean, yeah, I think Jesus was a man. No, it means doing Matthew 16, 24. It means picking up the cross, denying ourselves, and following after him. Even if the odds seem impossible, even if the cost feels like it's too great, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it seems like I can't do this, Jesus has told me that I've got a shot and it's not over till the fat lady sings. Hezekiah understood this principle even before Paul wrote about it, even before we had all these admonitions in the New Testament, even before we read about how that God gives the increase in, in Corinthians, even, even as we know that, that, that there's a universal truth. That God is with us and that God's fighting beside us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 21, we know that the Lord's going to intervene in all of our conflicts. Let's read in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 21. The Lord sent an angel in in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and verse 21. What did the Lord do? In this impossible situation, the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the commanders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his sons, his own flesh and blood, cut him down with the sword. How? Who would have saw this coming? The southern kingdom are in distress. They're being mocked openly by this nation that's just a big bully in society. And they're looking down the barrel of a gun, so to speak. But but how do they respond? They respond as their king had commanded them. And what what happens? God does what God does, and God makes impossible odds. God makes something that's completely impossible seem possible, and he grants the victory to his people, even if we're outnumbered, even if it looks hopeless, even if it's so dark and so grim, he will do what he does. He will redeem, and he will deliver, and he will lead his people. He sent an angel that wiped out 185,000 soldiers. If you look at the secular history of this, It's so faith-building because there are accounts of this camp of 185,000-some soldiers randomly just all falling ill from a disease, all of them, in one night. That wasn't random. That was the Lord. And as, as much as the secular world tries to deny it, that is what happened. God took them out. Why? Because he protects and he delivers his people. When Hezekiah stepped out in faith, when he and Isaiah spread the matter before the Lord, he gave the increase and he helped them and he delivered them. So what do we think? What do we think that the worst is going to come to us when we suffer for righteousness? We put ourselves out on the line. 
When we say, you know what? I am going to get up before everybody and, and I'm going to help with the Lord's Supper. What, what, I'm going to go out and I'm going to knock on somebody's door. I'm going to say hi to one of my friends and I'm going to say, hey, can we just talk about spiritual things? What's the worst that's going to happen to us? Is it even comparable to the fates that the people of God were, were looking at when the Assyrians were about to knock down their door and literally eviscerate them and decapitate them and enslave them? By no means. So what do we have to fear? We have nothing to fear. We have the charge to be soldiers, to be soldiers in this war and to do as the king has commanded us. People's very souls, and I can't emphasize this enough, people's very souls hang in the battle in this war. It's not just physical. It's not just flesh and blood. It's so much greater. If we look again in Ephesians chapter 6, we can read that, that this is a war that's beyond flesh, that we have this charge to go out to teach to make disciples, to be an example, and to shine brighter than we ever did. And why? Because we're here to restore the order of, of the church of Jesus Christ and to be that and to be Christians and to constantly be restoring ourselves and our own hearts because that's where it all begins. If you Look, look with me. Look with me. Verse 14, Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We have the Word of God on our side. We have the Lord on our side. There's no temptation or no trial that can defeat and that can obliterate the cause of Christ. This church, this kingdom is going to stand until the very last. and You can bet on that. And when you do that, and the more bet you place on that, the more you give to that, the more you're going to be eager to fight, the more effort you're going to give, and the more you're going to want to obey. Because we have an earnest love for God. We have that. So why don't you stand firm then? Why don't you stand firm? And why don't you, why don't you look within yourself and ask yourself, am I, what, what side of this war am I really on here? Am I, is it possible that I might, may be like the Assyrians? Is it possible that I think that I'm doing what God wants me to do, but in actuality, I haven't even enlisted? I haven't even become a member of his army? I'm not even a member of his, of his people? Is it possible that you could be like the Assyrians? Of course it's possible. Is it possible that you could, you could be a soldier, but you're kind of sleeping in the barracks while everybody else is going out on the front lines? What, what kind of repercussions does that have? When we're slack, what kind of repercussions does that have? I'm asking these because I love you. Because we don't have time to sit around and twiddle our thumbs in the middle of a war, in the middle of a battle. Now's your time. Now's your time to come forward and to change your life so that we can be on the same side, so that we can win this thing. Do so now as we stand, as we sing.